This podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! Gee! He's round the goalkeeper, he's done it! Absolutely incredible! He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was without a shadow of a doubt giving him lip. Sometime around 2011, a man called Joey wrote to Viz magazine, and this is what he said. I'm sick of sports commentators saying you couldn't write a script like this. If people can write scripts about dystopian futures in which life is in fact a simulation made by sentient machines to harness humans' heat and electricity as an energy source, they can probably write ones about Gary Taylor Fletcher scoring a last-minute equaliser against Stoke. Well, Joey, maybe you're right. If the game is so scriptable, then I have one question. Why are football films so terrible? Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and with me are my two special guests today. First of all, Dan Barnes, my colleague in HQ, uh, he's also the guardian of The Athletic Style Guide. So this seems like an appropriate moment to ask you, what's your biggest editorial bugbear? My biggest editorial bugbear? That's a tough question. Maybe... Maybe it's actually too many cliches, which probably disqualifies <laughs> me from appearing on this podcast. But, you know, I think you're obviously the arbiter of the uh, the hierarchy of what's a good cliche and what's not. Um, so I think I'll sometimes often defer to you on that one. I'm glad you've spared people uh, any any of the writers um, being named and shamed here. Um, I'm also joined by Jack Pitbrook, who is one of seven athletic writers to have pitched the idea of flying to Paraguay for a joint interview with Emmanuel Adebayor and Rocky Santa Cruz. Um, I feel that's quite close to your heart. Yeah, it is. I'm, uh, I can admit to being a Manchester City fan, I think. And I don't think, I don't, I think I kind of went to the most games back in that like early Mark Hughes era, mm. back when Adebayor and Santa Cruz both played for City, kind of just before City got really, really good. So I still have, you know, those two players are very much in my mind. Okay, so you've, you've both been delving into the worlds of football films this week to brush up on your on the best and worst of, of this particular cinematic subgenre. Before we get onto that, we're gonna we're gonna do our regular slot, which I think we can all now call our traditional slot, which is things we noticed about football this week. Um, first of all, Phil Neville's been in the news this week. Not necessarily the main reason, but his fridge has uh, come to people's attention. He has a very specific filled fridge. I think it's like every commercially available fruit juice known to man. Three three flavours of Yazoo, was it? I think so, yeah. And I think there was another picture of his old house, and he had a quiz machine in there. So just Phil Neville's house, can we just talk about this briefly? Um, his dining room is just very silver. I think there's obviously two words that come to mind. Uh, 
crushed velvet. <laughs> and I don't know what it is about today's society, whether it be footballers, uh, Love Island contestants, or any other kind of social media celebrity, but they must just all go to the same shop or have the same interior designer <laughs> who wants to kit out their houses completely in silvers and grey. Uh, there we are, a, a damning judgment on Phil Neville's uh dining room secondly um curious story from mls uh, inter miami are facing um, a legal battle with the actual inter about their name change because um well the u.s patent and trademark office have ruled against them saying that the uh, they found that their claim that there are a number of clubs around the world that use inter such as inter nashville inter atlanta fc inter turku of finland and so on, um, did not meet its burden to show that the MLS has valid proprietary ownership of the name Inter. Um, Jack, quite simply, um, should these names just be bandied around willy-nilly in world football? I think they probably should, in the sense that I don't think it does anyone any good for Inter Milan to control the name Inter. But this story does show up, like one of I think is one of the main authenticity issues of MLS, which is Mm. that all the names are kind of adapted and nicked off other of other big teams. So in this case, they've got I think CF, like Club de Football, into Miami in their name, and the fact that so many of these teams have FC, a rail salt lake, yeah, like New York City FC, as a kind of badge of authenticity. But in fact, it has the opposite effect. Like to me, the fact that you know you're a team start in the USA would call itself football club mm. as an attempt to appear more real in fact makes yeah. them look less real because they're just they're kind of wearing it as a sort of token well funnily enough this this desperate search for authenticity and kind of creating names from scratch is, is one aspect of, of football films so we're definitely going to get into that but the first thing we're going to talk about when it comes to football films is is kind of the main point really which is football choreography why is actual football so hard to stage on camera in your head dan what is the archetypal football film goal? If In your head, if you're making a football film, what happens? I mean, I think given the fact that it's scripted drama, mm. you know, all games are going to come to some sort of crescendo mm-hmm. with a glorious winning moment. So, well, you could argue maybe it's the pace that I play at, but I've never played a game of football where a goal scoring moment is where everything's gone into slow motion. <laughs> but that does seem to be the way that it happens. Um Bicycle kicks. Yeah. Why is it always bicycle kicks? I just don't know. I mean, I think maybe there's somewhere, something out there in the, you know, the filmmaking community that that is just the the nadir of a goal in the way that directors look at it somehow. That seems to be the way, you know, you have to be a scorer of a great goal, not Mm. a great goal scorer. A tap-in is never going to be the Hollywood finish that you want is it so that feels like such a shame I feel like a goal mouth scramble is just as cinematic as a as a flying volley Jack do you think football is just inherently unfilmable do you think it you know compared to other sports it's just too fluid to be filmed I think so yeah and I think so much of it requires you know like balance and I mean for it to look real you Mm. need players with exceptional balance and footwork and timing kind of skipping between each other like real footballers do and you can never ever get actors or stunt doubles to do that you could never get an actor or stunt double to do anything that would look remotely like Lionel Messi or Neymar playing well there, there, I think there are more mundane aspects to it I mean I, I understand why football films will reach as Dan says this kind of crescendo of a bicycle kick and a, and a spectacular goal but there are so many more mundane elements of football like defending for example films never get defending right all I ever see is sort of defenders sort of tiptoeing around yeah a, a bit like so they, they sort of um, approach the striker one after another like sort of hapless goons in a Bruce Lee movie and um, it, there are just so many aspects of football that, that clearly are far too clumsy for a, for a football film to to depict um, my favourite football film by far in, in every context is Escape to Victory and 
what it does so well, despite the whole scenario being utterly absurd, a set of prisoners of war suddenly deciding to play the Nazis in a football game in Paris, if we set that aside for the moment, the football action is really natural. It looks like they were just put out onto a pitch and said, go and play football and we'll try and see what we can get out of it. So Michael Caine sort of spraying the ball around. And um, some of the goals in this four-all draw are really scrappy. One comes off the post and then someone taps it in. And that, to me, is what football should be like. And then, of course, Pelé pops up with a bicycle kick in the last minute, which I suppose is the most understandable person to score a bicycle kick in the, in the last minute. Um, there are kind of there are kind of other aspects of football films. Um, we touched on this with the Inter-Miami thing. There seems to be an, a debate here. Do you, do you choose a, a real team in real life and then try and set this fictional person within it? Or do you choose a fictional place, like, say, Harchester United or Melchester Rovers? Or do you put a fictional team in a real place, like, say, Shadwell? Where do you, where do you get this authenticity from? Where, what's the best way around of doing it, do you think? So I think the Shadwell example, so this is in ID, yep. the sort of mid-90s hooligan classic, which mm. Adam asked me to watch in preparation <laughs> for this podcast, and I did watch it, and I thought it was fantastic. Um, I think in that sense, having a fictional team in a real place actually works really well, mm. because if you were setting it in if you were setting it in the football world that exists people would always be challenging it on realism points 100 and by taking it out of the real world and creating this fictional world for it you kind of protect it from those challenges mm-hmm. so in that sense i think it works really really well because uh, their, their rivals were whopping as well whopping. Which, which sounds like it they, they, they probably yeah. are could be a league one sort of unglamorous league one side yeah and like the fact that millwall and west ham in the real world are the places in East London that have football teams is obviously kind of contingent. And in a different timeline, it's totally plausible that Shadwell and Wapping could be the two biggest teams in that part of London. I think, I think where Shadwell goes too far is that their, their nickname is the dogs and their ground is called the kennel, which is so obviously an oblique reference to Millwall. So perhaps where it goes too far. Um, We're going to talk about one of our first examples here about, a film that tries to approximate real life. And that's Mike Bassett, England manager, which which I haven't seen. And I feel that's that's quite a shameful thing to admit. And that's up there with me not having watched Dream Team as well. Dan, Mike Bassett, England manager, how well do you think that reflects real life football or the, or the, the period that it's supposed to be about? You could almost look at it as a period piece, <laughs> given that it's set, you know, in a sort of 2002. It really is kind of a, a look at sort of football and the culture of the England team mm. and a major tournament mm. and the press and how England had done it. I mean, in a lot of ways, obviously, Mike Bassett is a parody of the famous Graham Taylor documentary. Oh, right, okay. It really is pretty much a satire of that, where sort of a, a manager who has just won the first division with Norwich is parachuted in uh, to, be, to be the England manager. There's lots of characters in there who are quite obvious winks to real life people there's a long like a there's a uh, a goalkeeper with a ponytail there's a <laughs> quite wild Geordie playboy right. there's a there's a pretty boy who's obviously meant to be David Beckham there's a striker on a complete um a complete goal drought who's sent into some sort of virtual reality goals machine. But do all these references kind of feel telegraphed, or did they? Is there plenty of texture to it? Do they? It's not that are they believable, but do they come across as being well constructed, or are they just basically parodies of? of- I think they are well constructed. I mean, I think for a football fan, Mike Bassett, I think you have to be a football fan to appreciate Mike Bassett. I think Mm. if you don't, if you're just going to looking at it as a generic, um, a a generic film, uh, film fan, you're probably not going to get these, uh, these things. But it's in a lot of ways, and some of the uh, the comedy setups and things, they they are just excellent. It's a real silly but very funny film, and just for anyone who's obviously obsessed with with the England team, it's just excellent. 
Yeah, I love the film. I haven't seen it for for quite a while, but mm. I I loved it at the cinema. I completely agree that you, it requires quite a lot of inbuilt knowledge mm. of Eng- the England team, England team at tournaments, and even then, it's like it's very much rooted in when it came out, which is two thousand and one. And I wonder whether you know when. So I saw this when I was I think thirteen or fourteen, and it, even though it's a fifteen rated film, the first such film that I saw at the cinema. <laughs> but if you if you if you showed it to a fifteen year old now, they probably wouldn't get most of it. Yeah, yeah, because it's so. It, it's very much like Graham Taylor and the golden generation and this, this kind of idea that the England manager was like the most important job in the country, which is what people used to say really recently, but nobody would say that now. It would sound like a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah. And also I loved seeing the kind of the interactions between Mike Bassett, the England manager, and the media. So they have Phil Jupiter playing this kind of very easy to recognize <laughs> uh, leading English newspaper journalist. If, if you watch the film, you'll know exactly what I mean. Yeah. And it, the centerpiece of this film is this press conference where Mike Bassett is expected to quit after kind of embarrassing himself drunkenly. And he reads out If by Rudyard Kipling and then says at the end, I think I can say this because it's a quote, England will be playing 4-4 fucking 2. <laughs> And um, and in this press conference, he's getting absolutely battered by the media, and they're all like, "Oh, when are you going to quit? It's time to go home. Even your wife's left you." Or that kind. Of, and it and it, it points to an incredibly like confrontational relationship between the media and the England manager, which doesn't really exist now in the Gareth Southgate era. I mean, I'm going to have to say, I think that's my second favourite press conference in the film. My favourite will be when Mike Bassett picks his England squad and there's 28 names in his 26-man squad, yeah. including Tony Hedges of York City and Ron Benson of Plymouth Argyle, obviously two fictional footballers. Yeah. And when he speaks to his press officer, it basically transpires that he wrote it on the back of a fag packet, which is a massive cliche in itself. A Benson and Hedges fag packet. <laughs> That's a great gag. I feel, like, I feel like choosing names for footballers is also quite a difficult job. Uh, there have been countless Jimmies. There are a lot of Jimmies. There's Jimmy Muir in When Saturday Comes, who's played by Sean Bean. Uh, there's only one Jimmy Grimble, and I, I have a shock fact about Jimmy Grimble. Uh, the goalkeeper in the climactic scene of There's Only One Jimmy Grimble is the same goalkeeper from Michael Owen Soccer Skills. He is the goalkeeper from Michael Owen Soccer Skills. He's the well done, he's 13 yes. guy. Yes. Wow. Um, so that was. We should interview him. I, had, <laughs> I did one day, and it was, it was a wonderful scene. I, sometimes I wonder football, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, is quite a niche thing. And for football films to appeal to an audience, I guess they have to kind of smooth everything over and generalise it a little bit. But um, I once remember watching Escape to Victory in a cinema in Islington, and um, when it cut towards the end of the end of the sort of the film, there was a, a shout from the back of the cinema, and it was Andy Gray who who'd had a few, and he simply shouted, "Come on, Pilly!" at the back. So you know, I guess this these sort of films have to appeal to somebody. Um, I do fear, though, that some football films are simply doomed to fail from the very start. And uh, where better example to go with this than the mooted Jamie Vardy the movie? Now, I feel like this, as time goes on, the graph of likelihood of this film happening is going down and down and down. But important question here is, who plays Jamie Vardy? Any suggestions? Oh, God, I don't know. There were those hilarious photoshops online, yeah. uh, which I kind of difficult to describe in a podcast where people like uh the same person made these four um photoshops of posters for the vardy films right. one two three and four yeah and i think he i think he had dean was it dean gaffney it was dean gaffney yeah. jamie vardy dean gaffney could work or maybe they could get and jamie they, vardy's lookalike to do it that's a good idea yeah that's a good idea i think they had um 
Did, did they have Wolf from Gladiator as Wayne Lineker? They did. They what did, the yeah. I mean, you're going to have to have a strong character actor, but you can't downplay the CGI technology we've the got available is that nowadays. I, you would need an actor who is now in his 20s or 30s, and there aren't... I can't really think of that many. I guess I, kind of, I don't really watch soap operas. Like, I don't know who the best young English actors would be. Maybe a Jack O'Connell. He's, you know, a strong English character yeah. actor. You know, him of Skins fame but and Startup, oh, yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is, a, this is a quite a problem for football films. They face this kind of dual dilemma. Do you get an actor in who can play football? Or do you get an ex-footballer in who can just about act? And various films are kind of flicked between this. But um, Daryl writes in and he says, uh, this is his suggested cast for Vardy the movie. Danny Dyer as Danny Drinkwater. <laughs> Vinnie Jones as Nigel Pearson. And Charlie from Casualty is Mike Dean. So he's filling the uh, he's filling the support cast roles there. Um, okay, so I've got a few more suggestions uh, right. for the Jamie Vardy. Well, for Jamie Vardy the movie. Yep. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot, so I have written it down. <laughs> so we'll start with people. People often forget that he was a part of Leicester's 2015-16 title-winning team, but Nathan Dyer was there. Oh, so could probably be played by Chris Rock. A bit. There's a think of a bit of a similarity there. I think okay. they look quite similar. Um, Casper Schmeichel, I think we could have Dolph Lundgren, given how scary he <laughs> Bit is. Old, but, but fine. He could, he could also play Robert Hooth, so two for the prize of one. Oh, that's very good. So, yeah, yeah there's yeah. definitely been, you know, Tom Hardy's done it. He's played twins in Legend, <laughs> hasn't he? That kind of thing. Um, I think um, Gary Lineker would have to feature it, obviously presenting Match of the Day in his pants. Yeah, he would so be himself. We'll get Wayne Lineker to play him. <laughs> Why not? It's probably about time to figure out, you know, once and for all, who's the best Lineker. Um, <laughs> Wes Morgan, I think, is going to be quite a key supporting role, so... There was a bit of controversy a few years ago about um, a certain actress who said that she can play whoever she wants, regardless of race or gender. So mm-hmm. let's finally get Scarlett Johansson <laughs> to put her money where Scarlett Johansson as Wes Morgan. Yeah, and I think that's it. And I mean, you know, I'd like to open up for given the advances in CGI technology now. I mean, we need some a real powerhouse to play Ranieri and maybe we need someone, you know, who's a proper character actor so I really think we could go with whoever whether it's uh, uh, Robert De Niro or you know just open it up to anyone really regardless of age we just because obviously anyone can be de really, to play I really like the idea of sort of De Niro having to play down Leicester's title hopes as you go into March, April just yeah. giving you some really mundane managerial chance. I would love to see De Niro doing dilly ding dilly dong <laughs> yeah. yeah I just feel like he's too, he's too gritty for that kind of role maybe he's not my theory about the Vardy film, if it ever does get made, is that surely a, a typical Jamie Vardy girl would be quite easy to choreograph, Dan? You would think so, wouldn't you? I mean, it's all about who's going to play that ball over the top, <laughs> quite frankly, isn't it? And we all know that ball's going in slow motion. <laughs> yes. You know, it's not going to be played at normal pace, mm. you know what I mean? I think the real sort of, if anyone's going to try and win an Oscar for Jamie Vardy, the movie, it's going to be about the celebration. I mean, he has obviously a particular, you know a particular style of celebrating mm-hmm. and a particular mm-hmm. way of moving his body. Yeah. And also you probably, I can imagine sort of in the sort of DVD commentary, there being kind of a, the lead actor kind of talking about just how difficult it was to wear that cast on his arm for, you know, 12 hours of filming a day. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of there's, things you've got to think about. There's you know? not much to play with. I, I fear that if it ever comes to fruition, this could be one of the worst football films of all time. Uh, speaking of which, Sam Keefe says, the worst football film of all time is She's the Man by some distance. Um, I've, again, I've never watched this, but Wikipedia describes this as a 2006 American romantic comedy sports film. It is inspired by William Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night. That does not sound promising, does it, Jack? No, I ha- I must admit I haven't seen this either. Uh, I'm, <laughs> it stars I'm Channing Tatum as a Vinnie fairly Jones. convincing hard man sort of midfielder type, sort of armband toting hard man. 
it's it's a very convoluted film with various other themes going on clearly but uh the the climactic goal is the most david cross is in it some of the cast for these films are absurd i never thought i'd see david cross vinnie jones and channing tatum in the same place i think i have to watch this now um it's a nickelodeon film no possibly the the climactic goal is having been unmasked as indeed a girl in 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 this football team despite having masqueraded as as a boy all this time she takes a penalty which hits the bar it deflects off the crossbar hits Channing Tatum on the head and then she from a standing start jumps and volleys it from six feet into the top corner past her ex-boyfriend in goal the whole thing is ridiculous it feels like that is the most unrealistic football scene except for Shaolin Soccer which is a different subgenre. Shaolin Soccer I get suggested this all the time, and I do not consider it canonical in the football film <laughs> because it's just it's it's a side issue. Um, other suggestions for worst football film: uh, Jamie Flaherty says uh, the Nick Moran starring vehicle Soccer Dog European Cup. Nothing comes close to how bad this xenophobic monstrosity is. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from our selection of 100 brands, including established names and up and coming designers. Try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe. You can then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For your stylist time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. Remember, you try before you buy, delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. Um, I watched a clip of this and I, you know, I'm aware of Nick Moran's back catalogue of stuff and it turns out he has a Scottish accent in this film and bad Scottish accents are a running theme in football films as we, we might touch on later. It's one of a curious number of football playing dog films. There were three of them in the space of five years at sort of the turn of the millennium and their average rating on IMDb is three out of five. Um, are dog football films a good idea in summary is the answer I'm asking you here. Well, I guess you need a different hook, don't you? Because for reasons you've already discussed, you can't use the actual football as the basis. So yeah. it has to be either to do with the fans or a fictional manager or a you know life away from the pitch. And so I suppose a dog would be as good a hook as any but what is it a dog that goes to the games or is it a dog no that a dog actually pitch? plays a dog plays yeah, no one bats an eyelid how do you, you, know, choreo- how do you choreograph that it's hard enough getting humans choreographing humans playing football it's lots of saves of, from penalties it's lots of penalty saves from, from the dog basically and it, it's yeah, it wears very thin so there's air bud world pup they're all essentially the same film labrador saves penalty is hailed as hero times three um it's just a regulatory nightmare really isn't yeah it? it's, yeah fifa would never allow this i just um, really don't think not even your not even your local counties your local fa i mean there's got to be something in the constitution of you know having to be a human to play association football false canine oh, good good Jesus. joke um joe patch he suggests mike ashley's cameo in goal three is probably the worst thing to happen to both cinema and football at the same time now a bit of digging here and it found out he uh, mike ashley paid three million for for his one line in goal three, which is simply telling someone to fuck off. What, really, sorry, he, he paid or was paid? He paid, he, he he paid himself three million paid to three say... million to have one line in goal three. That's that amazing. The, you know, I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions on Mike Ashley's deals that he's done, obviously <laughs> as time as chairman, but given that was the director video 
version of the epic goal trilogy. I mean, he really probably wasn't using his money wisely there, was he? That's even worse than Donald Trump being in Home Alone 2. <laughs> We're going to move on now to sort of films based around football. I, I suppose we can call them football-adjacent films. Um, maybe, Jack, the concepts of, say, football fandom and management are more conducive to film scripts than the action itself. Definitely. I, I think that I think any film which rests too heavily on the actual physical football is fighting a losing battle and therefore you're much it's much safer ground to focus on either fans or managers or the life away from the game and that really is a strength of Mike Bassett where there is like some football action but it's kind of fast up in a way which makes it fun whereas something like Damned United mm-hmm. Michael Sheen is fantastic in it like yeah. his his mimicry of Clough and the way that he kind of projects Clough's kind of playfulness and charisma and wit and imagination and also his kind of hard edge yeah is incredible it's so so good i mean again i haven't seen this film for about 10 years so i might be wrong but my memory of it is that like the weaker parts of the damned united are the bits where they actually kick a ball around because you just think yeah, no, that doesn't look like kick people kicking absolutely football absolutely right there there are there are glimpses in damn united of where it looks like they're about to break out into some football you think please don't please don't because it's i think it's like stephen graham is is yeah. billy bremner and you think oh god this is gonna be awful and but but uh, I think Michael Sheen does sort of score a goal in training as, as Brian Clough, and that's actually quite good because yeah. yeah, I think he's half decent at football. He's meant to be a really good player, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, so it's it's good that they kind of only scratch the surface of, of playing. Um, but I would love to see more films like that. I'd love to see more biopics mm. of great managers. Um, I'd love to see like a you know someone do. Why didn't somebody do a Ferguson film or a Wenger film yeah. or or Mourinho in the kind yeah. of laundry basket anything, in the new camp or anything like that? Who would you most like to see sort of a character study biopic film? Uh, I well, we're opening it up. To, well, who know. would who would play Ferguson? Brian Cox. Ooh. Yeah, or perhaps I don't know. I'm going to go for Wayne Lineker again. Ian McKellen. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne Lineker. I can see I can see Brian Cox as Ferguson. Ian McKellen as Ferguson. Oh, that's good. Um... You need someone who's got the kind of gravitas, but also the like propensity, Gary propensity Oldman. to rage as well. Patrick Stewart. The old might be slightly too young. Yeah, I think that's a frequent issue. You're basically getting people who are too old. Sean Bean was about ten years older than his character in When Saturday Comes. It's because I yeah, think just yeah. actors clearly, uh, you know, mature as they get older and get better, so they more become more trustworthy for these roles. Um, sacrilegious here. I've never read Fever Pitch the book, but I've thoroughly enjoyed the film. Forever, I think it's a really good film on its on its on a standalone basis. I think it's an underrated rom com for a start, and I think Colin Firth is surprisingly believable as a football fan. Now, the background to this was he had a barely passing interest in football. Nick Hornby took him to Highbury in 1996, and he basically immersed him in Arsenal culture. Uh, he memorised the names of the 1971 and 1989 squads to the point where he was just kind of reciting them on set. And uh, I think he's actually surprisingly believable as a gooner, um, but he needs Mark Strong alongside him, who is who looks like Steve Bold, and and he's actually 100% gooner in real life. And uh, I think that the kind of pessimist-optimist partnership between them is really good. So a film about fandom is definitely possible, isn't it? Yeah, de- definitely. I think that's probably the most accessible thing because you don't need the people... The people don't even have, to even have to look like people. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, they don't have to You'd look... be anybody. Or, yeah, anyone can be a fan. I think the defining moment of Fever Pitch, where I think they've nailed football fandom as as much as it can be nailed, is when they're watching the climactic title-deciding game at Anfield, which, which in isolation, you could barely script, as we said at the start. It's uh, when they're responding to the commentary. This is awful. It's like the end of the world or something. I think, in a way, if Arsenal are to lose the championship... 
having had such a lead at one time, it's somewhat poetic justice that they have got the result on the last day, even though they're not to win it. Oh, shut up, please. Yeah, I feel like that's a defining um, act of a football fan is getting really angry at what a co-commentator has said on TV. Um, any other suggestions for football-adjacent films? Um, I'd like to put one, uh, put one to you that's a very good film. I don't know if you've seen it, which is the 2009 Ken Loach film, Looking for Eric. No. So obviously this is slightly different because it's a film that actually stars a footballer turned actor in Eric Cantona. Yeah. Um, it's about a young man who... We don't really need to get into the intricacies of the plot, really. But for the long and short of it, he sees visions of Eric Cantona wherever he goes in his life. He's a man from a poor background whose life's falling apart and he struggles to uh, he struggles to have the confidence to really deal with the issues that are in his life. But Eric Cantona will pop up and <laughs> speak to him all the time. Pop up and speak to him all the time. And it's just... When, he speak, when he's constantly trying to find out what Eric's greatest moment in Manchester United shirt was. Yeah. And he finally gives him the confidence by telling him it wasn't a goal. It was a pass. It was an assist. So he plays more than a cameo role in this film. Is he actually properly in it? He is, and he's right. very good because Eric Cantona was just playing Eric Cantona. We all know that he's had his uh, his very lots of sort of pivots to acting, but he is just playing Eric Cantona, and it's obviously a very serious film. But it's a very it's a very very good film. Very good film. I feel like the only candidate better than Cantona as footballer as actor is actually Ali McCoist who starred in A Shot at Glory in the year 2000. Um, There are a couple of incredible quotes here. First, Kevin Costner. He is a truly remarkable talent. It's rare that sportsmen can act, but Ali McCoist is a natural. He has an Olivier-type quality. Uh, Robert Duvall, who produced this film, said McCoist was 80 times better for this part than Russell Crowe and more charismatic. Olivier could never kick a ball, but McCoist is a very natural actor. Wow. So, Ali McCoist, a little background here. McCoist plays Jackie McQuillan, which is the most Scottish name they could possibly come up with, who his baffling backstory is that he used to play for Celtic, and they took it so far as to take footage of him playing for Rangers and just make the shirts green. So, he's the star signing for a fictional Scottish team called Kilnocky, which is owned by Michael Keaton, and the manager is Robert Duvall playing Gordon McLeod with the worst Scottish accent I have ever ever heard this is our shot at glory lads all right all right uh jack what do you think is this obsession with scottish managers in football films that the hurricanes were managed by jock stone i think in the cartoon why is it always scottish managers i think because i think the success of scottish managers throughout the late 20th century has given them a kind of stamp as being, if you want serious, not not just success, but success, seriousness, uh, professionalism, like a kind of dourness, mm. that is the only way to go. Like there are no, there are almost literally no, I mean, this is a great topic in itself, but there are almost literally no legendary English managers apart from Clough. And yeah. that's why we talk about Clough in England all the time. Whereas Scotland, of course, has got Busby, Shankly, Ferguson, Steen, but it's incredible watching that clip from from the film and seeing this character who's like halfway between Colonel Bill Kilgore from Apocalypse <laughs> Now and Walter Smith. I mean, do you, do you really think that obviously after after his work on The Godfather, that this was the next thing on Robert Duvall's bucket list? Well, he it, didn't come back. He didn't come back for Godfather Part Three, did he? That's why they had to. He was too busy making to, a shot of glory. They had, to, yeah. they had to write Tom Hagen out of the script. Uh, because I think they couldn't agree enough, enough money for Deval to come and be in the film. It's like, God, did you not have anything else better to do? I just I, There must have been people on set going, oh, how can we not have Robert, Robert Deval playing the Scottish football manager? Um, Dan, what, what is it about Ali McCoyce that makes him the... Because he, he has a sex scene in this film as well. I mean, he must be absolutely loving this because he's, he comes across really convincingly. What is it about Ali McCoyce that makes him the archetypal footballer as actor? 
perhaps it's just how affable he is. I mean, yeah. Alan McCoy has really sort of become another one of the nation's sweetheart with obviously his recent commentary yeah. um, during the last major tournament and now sort of when he was on um, Premier League football over the Christmas period, mm. just with the fact that he will immerse himself into um, wherever he's visiting or wherever he's commentating on. So I imagine he took exactly the same approach to this. Imagine Ali McCoy's meeting Robert Duvall on the first day <laughs> of the set in wherever the fictional Kilnocky yeah. is. I mean, there probably wasn't even a Wikipedia back in 2000, so yeah. but he probably will have memorised Robert Duvall's entire back catalogue and will have been ready to chat to him about everything. Everything, what was Francis Ford Coppola like? Everything like yeah. that. So, And sex appeal, let's not... Let's, oh, I mean, How can I forget? I mean, Is he a housewife's choice? I think he probably is. I'm, so. You know, exactly. Maybe As not I'm now. not a housewife, I can't you know, confirm or deny that, but yeah. you know, maybe he is. Maybe he is. On to less sexy matters. Um, Jack, why did anyone think that a film about FIFA and the history of FIFA would be interesting? Um, United Passions. I think I think your question's wrong. They didn't make it because <laughs> they didn't make it because they thought it would be interesting, right? Like it was it was always a vanity project. They put seventeen million pounds of their own money into the budget, which total was about twenty three million or something. Uh, it made less than one hundred and seventy thousand dollars at the box office. Um, Tim Roth played Set Blatter, a kind of young Set Blatter. And this is what uh, Tim Roth had to say about it. The film is awful. Uh, I hated doing it. It was the wrong film, but for the right reasons. I had two kids in college, so I had to make a decision. And it was probably poorly judged. But once you make that decision, you have to follow through. It's a hard road being in something you don't want to do, but I'm glad I did it for my family. What a rousing quote to go and watch United Passions. It is terrible because it is a film about football administration and that can never be caught. Yeah, but not just football administration, but like venality and corruption in football administration. It's not even like an an honest account of football administration. No, it glossed over that. It glossed over the corruption because they just didn't put it in. (laughs) Um, And Tim Roth, he said he was basically trying to sneak in as much corrupt behaviour as they could and they just weren't having it. So yeah, it was it was essentially a vanity project for FIFA and uh, and terrible and does not belong in the in the family of football films. We're going to move on to a very specific corner of the football film genre, which is hooligan films. Now, I and I guess like hooliganism itself, they're not really to do with football, but I feel like they need our attention here. Um, they kind of range from the really gritty, like The Firm, Gary Oldman in 1989, to just the silly Green Street 3 never back down straight to DVD 2013 um, I need to start here with the, the eternal debate Football Factory or Green Street Jack Football Pittsbrook fa- Football Factory right why uh, Danny Dyer Danny Dyer is better than Elijah Wood uh, he's more convincing I think <laughs> he's uh, he's yeah he he, he I think he's close he feels more plausible as mm. the sort of young man getting involved in football hooliganism mm than Elijah Wood does. Uh, I also think, I think Football Factory is cooler as well. I think it's more British. It has a better soundtrack, definitely. Mm. Uh, I don't, I've seen it a few times. I don't actually remember any of the plot details, but I remember it being quite a good laugh, whereas Green Street did, didn't really do it for me at all. Green Street, Dan, is kind of a slave to its backstory right from the very start. So Elijah Wood's character is a Harvard dropout who comes to London to visit his sister. And the first scene of him in London is uh, there were some football fans fighting the previous night. He rocks up in what looks like, say, Trafalgar Square. And, he's, and there's a phone box lying on the floor. And he says to his sister, well, what happened here? And she went, match day madness. Tottenham were in town last night. It's fighting, losing battle from there on in, right? Well, you say that, but I mean, fresh from sort of starring as, uh, in, you know, starring in the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they just went, they, they took a, a football hooligan film and went with, a, at least tried to do something different with it, mm. with the main character. 
character. Yeah. Now, I do wonder if Elijah Wood signed on to this film late or something like that, so they had to sort of um, come up with a um, with a backstory for him. But as a Harvard graduate who's you know has, who takes the fall for. I think he takes the fall for his roommate's yes. uh, bag of cocaine. That's right. And takes a payoff to, and so is exiled to London to visit, you know, visit, visit. Uh, <laughs> and here I am. And here West I am, Ham. you know. You, you tell me you're not interested to know what happens <laughs> no, there? No, I am. Convincing? No, I'm I convinced. am, hugely, of course. I'm convinced. Anyway, he ends up just, as you do, being mixed in with a leader of the Green Street elite. And that's elite. Charlie Hunnam. Oh, I mean, we'll get who on to his. I think he's a Geordie-born actor who has lived in LA for most of his professional life. And he was cast in the role as kind of head top boy of of the green street elite as they're known in this film and uh, his accent is absolutely incredible i was convinced he was american yeah. or at very least australian i was mind blown when i found out that charlie Hunnam is a british and yeah you know, i'm sure he's done on he's gone on to do some other things i think he's the lead in sons of anarchy which i've never actually seen yeah, no, he's gone on to i'm sure he's very things. good in that yeah uh, i think he was in a king arthur film as well yeah. and i think it's just one of the many sort of things that are just so ridiculous about Green Street that make it endearing. Mm. The whole, the way that they sort of look into the football hooliganism culture as being, you just turn up to have a fight. But then there's also that little bit of humanity in the yeah, um, yeah. in uh, Charlie Hunnam's character that he teaches kids. He's a PE teacher and he's nice yeah. with kids. He just has a really fresh looking West Ham tattoo on his back, which obviously... Um, he, I'm sure if he was a real life, he'd be devastated about that tattoo now, yeah. given that they changed their badge. But you know, it's um, everything. It just, I think, it just commits to its own ridiculousness. Yeah, fair enough. You know, we've got Man United away this week, <laughs> so they win a fight by hiding in a truck and getting a truck driver to drive them into the centre of Manchester, and they win that fight. But it's uh, oh, it's excellent. Loudly enunciating the fixtures and cup draws is a key part of any of any hooligan film. Like celebrate, like gathered around the the radio, listen to the cup yeah. do it all away. Yes. Do people do that? I mean, I just, I don't. Yeah, maybe hooligans do. I don't know. But I think the one thing I will concede about Green Street in comparison to Football Factory is I feel like Green Street lacks a really genuinely scary character, a convincingly terrible man, and Football Factory has Billy Bright, and a, a man who basically only plays that role, a bit like Tamar Hassan, he basically only plays the same character. And he's genuinely quite terrifying. Yeah, so he plays Dog in Lockstock. Yes, so that's there's, right. Yeah. There, there's quite a lot of overlap between um, hooligan films and British gangster films mm. in terms of who made them and who, who writes them and who's in them. So, for example, Nick Love, the director of... Football Factory is also famous for directing Outlaw, The Sweeney, The Firm, The Business, all that kind of like <laughs> sub Guy Ritchie yep. uh, British crime films. Um, but yeah, Billy Bright is. Let's is make a, more of them. Yeah, Billy Bright is a is a really good is a really good baddie, and he's obviously quite intimidating for you know our hero Danny Dyer, whose character Tommy Johnson. Dan, what say you? I mean, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to disagree with you there <laughs> to say that Green Street doesn't have a convincing villain. The leader of the Millwall firm, who is kind of cast as the film's villain, is Tommy Hatcher, who's played by Jeff Bell, who's a very physically oh, imposing okay. British actor. I mean, you'll, you'll notice Matthew. He's quite a, quite old guy. Yeah, yeah. He's oh, fair a enough. Fair, no, Maybe yeah, yeah. Okay. Policeman in Peaky Blinders, that okay. kind of thing. Oh, he, is he is genuinely hard. He is generally a very, very evil character in that film. I mean, for a film that's sort of there's lots of fighting, but it's a bit silly. But mm. as it gets towards the sort of um, towards the sort of resolution of the plot, you know, he stabs a man in the neck with a bottle. You know, it's been out for 15 years, so I'd assume you'd have seen it. And then he delivers this really brutal final beating in the final fight scene where he sings some sort of song about a Millwall fan beating up a West Ham fan and dropping a brick on his face where he beats to death one of the lead characters. And Mm. that act of violence is what is kind of the... uh, the resolution of the film and everyone realizes 
That's a bit too much, mate. You said the resolution of the film. If it, I feel like Green Street, if it had been a standalone film, would probably have passed into legend quite a while ago as, as, a, as a one-off. But unfortunately, they just couldn't resist making a sequel. And I guess football films, just like any other film franchise, are inflicted by this, this obsession with making more sequels. And uh, so there was Green Street 2, Stand Your Ground. Then Green Street 3, Never Back Down which is essentially the same instruction, just repeated. Um, so what would Green Street 4 be called? Sort of, please Hold don't, your own. Hold your own. Just remember. Please remember. Stick around. Yeah. Don't just, give up. Don't give up would be good. Um, just Come on, lads. It's nil-nil. Yeah, <laughs> still nil-nil. Green Street 2 was just absurd from the start because obviously the first film was set in East London and despite a few dodgy characters, was essentially a passable hooligan film set in a realistic context. Green Street 2 opens with some of the secondary characters, none of the main ones, and they're suddenly at a US penitentiary, but there's never a reference. They never say where they are, so it could be in England, but it's clearly not because they're all in orange jumpsuits. It's basically Guantanamo Bay, and uh, I I haven't even bothered watching the third one because I I don't think it was even straight to DVD. I think it was straight to the bin, but um, I don't think there will be a Green Street 4. Um, Jack, I feel like we should we should talk about ID nineteen ninety five simply because about three hours after I suggested you watched it, you published an Instagram story saying how have I never watched this before, with um, with a clip of Reese Dinsdale um, going at it with Saskia Reeves, but it's it's the cast of characters that that I find wonderful. It's got Billy Mitchell in from EastEnders, Doctor Truman from EastEnders, Jay's dad from The Inbetweeners, the other one from Life on Mars. And then this um, a guy who plays Gumbo, I think he turned up in EastEnders like a decade later He's as well. Got um, Warren Clark from D. Alan Pasco, yeah, who talks like Yoda. Yeah, who runs the bar. So I, it's I got, can smell police. I can. It's also got Jamie Foreman, who is the racist taxi driver in Football Factory, and right. is Duke in Layer Cake. Mm. It's really good. It's, I think ID's great, except for the random fire breather in the pub. Yeah. I think it's quite convincingly grim totally yeah i think there are like one or two things which stand out as dated Mm. or don't quite work Uh, like this there are two sex scenes which are both (laughs) bizarre but like the overall the overall arc of the story can Mm. can we spoil it on here we might as well yeah i think we can the overall arc of the story which is undercover policeman goes undercover with hooligan firm to try and find out to to try and put their top boys in jail becomes totally won over to the hooligan lifestyle so much so that he, and I think this is kind of revealed in the penultimate scene, he, st- he's, he murders someone in a hooligan fight. His life collapses because he becomes so caught up in the hooligan lifestyle. Yeah. And then it has this fantastic shot at the end where it's like he's kind of joined a National Front type organisation. And you're not sure whether he's not, undercover or not. Yeah. That's it's a brilliant, a, it's a brilliant, brilliant ending. Yeah. But that arc is so convincing. It's obviously rests on a brilliant performance by Dinsdale. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those... What I think what really comes across strongly is the immense buzz that hooliganism gives to a very, very certain type of person. Yeah. And the way, like, the power of that, like, mob mentality, extreme kind of, extremely powerful sense of tribalism and identification 
and toxic masculinity and regional pride and all the kind of different things which make hooliganism attractive. And that, that is ultimately what hooliganism films do at their yeah. essence is, is they show you why hooliganism is, is fun, inverted commas, or cool, inverted commas. And what, this, what I like about this film as well is that it does what, say, you know, some of the other more modern hooligan films don't do, which is to tell you how awful it is as well at the same time. <laughs> yeah. it, it gives you both things at the same time. And that mm-hmm. is such a difficult thing to do. As good as it is and definitive as, as I feel it is, of course, even that could not resist having a sequel it it took 20 years um, for the sequel to emerge but id had a sequel and shadwell in 2015 had been taken over by a russian oligarch and they were now preparing for european tour uh does that sound like a film you would watch dan absolutely (laughs) well there we go um i think i guess this kind of sums it all up football football is incredibly hard to choreograph and when they try and do it it looks terrible almost uniformly um, the only way to do a good football film is to avoid all the football completely and only focus on the human stories. And then when you get to a really kind of niche aspect of like hooligans, it basically, it's so bad, it's good. So can we all kind of agree now that football films are a waste of time? We just Football is so good in real life or so mundane in real life that it just can't be summed up in either context on film. It absolutely can't. I mean, it's just maybe it's just the the chaos of football itself. Yeah, it's a chaotic thing. They, as you go back to saying you couldn't write a script like this, I'm, I'm, maybe you really can't. Maybe you really can't. I mean, I think there's just too many intangibles, and the characters and the people involved are just so complex. Mm. You ask someone to ask a football hooligan to uh, to tell you logically why he acts the way he does or anything like that, he probably he might struggle. So to ask a, a bunch of people in a in a writing room to do it, yeah. You know, there's just something about it, isn't there? There's something about it. Yeah, I certainly don't feel like any of these films need to exist. Like, I feel like football does football does a good job of providing us with more than enough narrative and character and plot uh, every year at, at every level, basically. Well, that constitutes the, the bicycle kick finish to our podcast. Um, thank you so much both for joining me. My pleasure. For this very special episode. You're very welcome. And uh, we'll see you for episode five next week. Cheers, everyone. Cheers, everyone.